you would, turn with me this morning to Psalm 127. We will only be looking at the first verse of Psalm 127 this morning. I would encourage you to come back tonight to our table talk. We'll dive in a little bit deeper to the uh, final verses of this chapter. But the beautiful thing about expository preaching is you can preach a word, a verse, a chapter, a book. If we wanted to, we could preach the entire grand narrative of Scripture this morning. Uh, preaching, when it's done rightly, is simply proclaiming what the text says. And so we find ourselves in verse 1 of Psalm 127 this morning. Very simple verse, a verse that you're probably familiar with. If you'll follow along with me, it says, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. Uh, One of the exciting things for me in moving back to the States from our, our seven years overseas uh, is uh, I've been able to get my, my books back. Uh, I, uh, my library didn't get to make it with us overseas. Uh, books are heavy. They take up space. Uh, and so of all the things we left behind, my books were one of the things that I had to part with But in God's grace, my youngest brother has been uh, the gatekeeper, the watchman over my library over the past seven years. He's taken really good care of my books. Uh, And so a couple weeks ago, I went up to the Metroplex and I got all my books back. Uh, They're already in my office. It was like Christmas morning, and I realize how dorky this sounds. It was like Christmas morning, opening up the boxes and, and seeing my books again and As I'm going through my library, I realize that um, I have accumulated quite a few books from my father's library. My father was a pastor, uh, and I inherited some of of his books from his time in seminary. He was in seminary in the 90s. Um, And it was sad to, to go through many of my father's books and realize that the vast majority of them are out of date. They're obsolete, just 20, 30 years removed. And the reason for that primarily is the vast majority of these books that are written about ministry and church life and the pastorate begin with cultural trends and norms of the day and then bring along into what's happening in the world a type of business model of how to be a successful church. And then, because it's a Christian book, they attach to it some Bible verses here and there. But the heart of these books is, here's what's happening in the world, we need to adjust. And sadly, these books are quite useless to me because we don't live in 1991 anymore. The world has changed quite a bit in those years. I think this illustration reminds us of two things this morning. First... The thoughts and ideas and the methodologies of men will come and go, but the word of God remains the same forever. This book that we sit under this morning and its relevance to us today in the year 2022 is just as relevant as it was the day that it was written. The gospel, 
does not change based on the trends of the culture or the location of the church. The gospel heralded in San Antonio today is the same gospel that is heralded in East Asia. The gospel does not change. The means in which we proclaim it does not change. And when we consider the church and who the bride of Christ is to be, the task has been made clear for us in the word of God alone. The church, in its practice, has looked very similar throughout all of its history, and rightfully so. What we have done in this place this morning, the singing of the word, the praying of the word, the sitting under the word, is what the church in Africa and Asia and Europe has done throughout this day. It does not change based on the trends of society. But secondly, and more applicably to the verse that we find ourselves in this morning, when we think about this illustration of my father's books, there is a pragmatic way of doing church where we look to the end goal and are willing to do whatever it takes in our own efforts to reach that goal instead of understanding that Christ has already promised us the end goal. Namely, that he will build his church, and that one day there will be people from every tribe and nation gathered around the throne to worship him for all of eternity. And clinging to that promise by simply being faithful as a local church to what he has charged us to be and do as his bride until he comes. When we put the cart before the horse to speed up the process of church growth and using different methods, we will find ourselves with a man-made enterprise instead of a spirit-filled church. In our verse this morning, we see that genuine church growth only comes from God. This verse that we find ourselves in this morning is broken up into two stanzas. You can see it there for yourself in the text. They are divided uh, with two phrases that are very similar. When we come to Scripture, especially in the Psalms, when the writer repeats himself, he is wanting to emphasize something of importance. And so both of the stanzas in verse 1 are, are started with these three words, unless the Lord. Uh, and in this, we see that everything we have comes from the Lord. Uh, This word here in the Hebrew is just one word. We see it as three in our modern translation, unless the Lord. The root word there is the word Yahweh, the name of the Lord. And the participle that's attached to the name of Yahweh literally means if without. And so the writer wants us to understand something here. He's saying to us, unless the Lord, if without the Lord, we are nothing. If the Lord does not intervene on our behalf, we are dust. This is his grace to us. Apart from his grace, we are nothing. Now, this is true of all of creation. We know this as common grace, that all of creation is experiencing the grace of God. Uh, Those who are Uh, For Christ and those who are enemies of Christ are all experiencing the common grace right now, breath in our lungs, uh, the life that we have. That comes from the Lord. 
Uh, now, the skeptics will say, where is God's grace in my life? My life is miserable. I, I've lived a life that is, is full of suffering and sorrow and heartache. But we need to understand that even in common grace, suffering is a grace from God. Because the suffering that we do experience in this life is far less than what we deserve. In our sinful rebellion against a holy God, we deserve to be wiped off the face of this earth. And yet, one second more, that we have breath in our lungs to believe in Christ for salvation, no matter how bad our circumstances are in this life, is a grace of God. But this is also true for the believer this morning, unless the Lord. This is what we know as special grace, the grace that is given to those who believe in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Salvation is all of God. We contribute nothing to our salvation, and yet God has intervened on our behalf by sending his son in the form of a man to die a death that he did not deserve so that by faith alone, in grace alone, we can have life eternal. He has intervened on our behalf. And so all of our life, in a broad sense, but also in the sense of our eternal state, is dependent on God alone. Um, Many of you have newborn babies. Some of you are are expecting babies soon. You know how much the, the infant depends completely on the mother for its life. We are like newborn children who are dependent on God for everything. And in our arrogance and pride, we tend to think that all that we have is because of what we have contributed to our life. But it's all of God, unless the Lord. These three words are a profound truth that we as the people of Christ must humble ourselves under each and every day. Confessing each and every day that, Lord, apart from you, I'm nothing. We should live our lives under this banner, praising God for all that we have in this life, the blessings that he's bestowed upon us, Uh, talking in such a way around our children where our children hear us talking about our possessions, not in a sense of, look what daddy has accomplished for you, but rather look what the Lord has done for us to provide for all of our needs. When you take out on a family vacation and you pray before you leave together as a family, thank the Lord for the vehicle that you have that provides the means for your family to spend time together. It's, it's the Lord's. Children who are in this place this morning. One of God's greatest graces to you is the parents that he has given to you. And I understand that not every family situation is maybe the idyllic situation. But make no mistake about it, children, the situation that you are living in right now with the parents that you have is a grace of God. You have the exact parents that God intended for you to have before the creation of the world. And so in response to that, children, obey your parents. Trust your parents, because in doing so, you're obeying and trusting this God who is so gracious to you. Use your wealth for kingdom work. All that you have in your wealth is from the Lord. Don't waste it and invest it in trivial, fleeting, worldly things. Invest what you have in your wealth in kingdom work and things that have an eternal impact. It's all from the Lord. 
But even in the midst of suffering, know that even in the darkest days of our life, God is using all things for our good and for his glory. That Christ suffered in your place and that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. Unless the Lord. Our hope is not in these fleeting things. Our hope is in heaven with Christ because God has made a way for salvation. So these three words, unless the Lord, impact all of life, but they especially impact, I believe, in verse 1, how we operate as the church. In the second half of these these two stanzas in verse 1 of 127, we see that our efforts as the local church are for nothing apart from the Lord. Now, we need to address, what is it that we're talking about specifically here? Are we talking about building houses? Are we talking about watching over the city? Well, if you haven't noticed yet, I believe we're talking about the church. How can I come to this conclusion? Well, two things here. First is the context. Look at verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. He goes on to talk about how children are a blessing, like a, a, a archer with a quiver full of arrows. What do children and the family have to do with building the church, building up the people of God? Well, in the Old Testament especially, there's no distinction between the family and the larger community of the nation of Israel. The family is an integral part of the covenant community of Israel. Discipleship is happening in the home. Training is happening in the home. As the family goes, so goes the nation of Israel. And so just to let us see this here in Scripture, if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Do a little Bible drill here together. Deuteronomy 6. If you're familiar with Deuteronomy, you know in verse 4 we have the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But if you look at verse 7, notice the application is directly on the home. Verse 7, Deuteronomy chapter 6. He says, you shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down in your house, and when you rise in your house. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontals between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and your gates. This great command in verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, hinges on the family. Now, Let's keep the Bible drill going. Turn with me over to Judges, just a few books past Deuteronomy. Judges chapter 2. Again, we're going to look at verse 7. So Judges chapter 2, verse 7. Joshua is on his deathbed. And listen to what it says about Joshua's generation. And the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. Joshua's generation loved the Lord and they served the Lord all of their days. And yet look over at verse 10 in chapter 2. 
Verse 10 says, And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. So all of Joshua's generation dies. And notice what it says. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. We have an entire nation that genuinely loved and served the Lord, and yet they forgot to teach it to their children. And we have an entire generation who doesn't even know the name of the Lord. And so, not only do we see in the Old Testament the importance of the family in the covenant community of people, this is still true in the New Testament. The family is an integral part of this covenant community. Discipleship still primarily happens in the home, mom and dad. Your primary responsibility as a parent is to disciple your children. And so as we look at verse 1 of Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city, in an Old Testament context, we're thinking about the covenant community of the nation of Israel. In a New Testament context, that's the church. The second reason why I think we can interpret it this way is because of the word city and house. Unless the Lord builds the house, unless the Lord watches over the city. When we see this language in the Old Testament, the city of God, the house of God, the people of God, we have in mind what? God's covenant people. This family of faith, which again in the New Testament is the church. So, We can see this as unless the Lord builds the church, unless the Lord watches over the church. So where do we go from here? Notice that the first word there, unless the Lord builds, that word means literally to prosper. The Lord is the one who prospers his church. Unless the Lord watches over, that word literally means to preserve. The Lord is the one who preserves his church. There's two really important things that we see happening in this verse. First is this, Christ will build his church. We see this in Matthew 16, 18. Christ said, on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Only God brings in the sheep. God is the one who builds his church. God is the one who saves and draws in his people to himself. And yet, in God's sovereignty, he has chosen to use people like you and me as the means in which his kingdom expands in this world. We are the heralds of the gospel. We do not save lost and dying souls. That's the work of the Spirit in them. But God has chosen that the the lips of men should be the means in which his good news goes forth in this world. We are God's love made manifest in this world. We are the ones to disciple others and train them up in the faith. So when you look at the text here, verse 1, those who build uh, and then the watchman stays awake, there are people who are putting in effort for something good. And the implication of the text is they're working hard, They might even be finding success. They're simply being faithful to the task. We have a responsibility as believers, as Calvary Hills Baptist Church, to be faithful to watch over this church, that it would grow up into what Christ would have it to be. We are just simply called to be faithful. Faithful to Christ, faithful to his word. Now, this is one of the the great paradoxes of of Scripture. 
Oftentimes when you come to Scripture, you, you find two things that seem to be at odds in, in our human brains. But when you dig down deeper in the economy of God, these things are not really at odds, but they are, they are unified. They go hand in hand. And that's what we see happening here. Christ alone builds his church, and yet he's called us to build his church. We see this in sanctification. We do not sanctify ourselves. The Holy Spirit does that. But we see time and time again in the New Testament where we are commanded to be about the work of sanctification. I like to think of this in the illustration of a, of a styrofoam cup. I'm sure many of you, when you were in elementary school, your, your teacher gave you a styrofoam cup in class one day and some soil. And then she gave you a lima bean, and you put the lima bean in the soil, and all the kids water it, and they put it in the window. A couple days later, all the kids are gathered around the window. Why? Because there's a little, little sprout of, of life coming out of the cup. And there's a lot of excitement and a lot of emotion because there's, there's life in the cup. Can you see it? And then you take your cup home, and you show your mom and dad, and they're just really proud of you, even though you've really done nothing. Uh, they, they applaud you, that's so good, and they put it in the, the window seal in the kitchen and they water it. Obviously, you don't go up inside the plant and cause the cells to move so that it grows. God brings the life. God grows the plant. But there are things that you do to encourage the growth. You don't put the styrofoam cup in your closet. The plant will die. It will not thrive. No, you give it sunlight. You water it. This is what we see in sanctification. This is what we see in the life of the church. Christ will build his church. But there are things we are supposed to do according to God's word alone to encourage that growth. So catch this. There is a type of work, though, that can be done in vain. If you have not heard anything else that I've said this morning, I want you to hear this. It is possible for us to build up this church in our own efforts and our own power and potentially even see success in the eyes of the world and it be for nothing. That is a terrifying reality that should humble us and call us to our knees as the people of God and plead to him on behalf of this place and our families to guard us for sin from sin and build us up into who he would have us be. Right now, as we sit in this place, in the state of Texas, some of the largest churches in the world have their doors open hours away from this place where there are thousands of people who will flock in and out of these churches today. Massive churches where the Holy Spirit does not reside. How can this be? That a New Testament church, a church, a, a, a building that claims to be a New Testament church can be dead. Turn with me over to Revelation chapter 3. Do some more turning here. Revelation 3, Revelation at the end of, of your Bible. If you're familiar with the book of Revelation, you know at the beginning Jesus addresses the seven churches, and in chapter 3, verse 1, he addresses the church in Sardis. And so this is a region, a, a city, a place 
uh, in the time of the early church, and Christ addresses the church in Sardis. And listen to what he says in verse 1. It says, And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, The words of him who has the seven spirits of God and of the seven stars. This is Christ speaking. He says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of God. Remember then what you received and heard Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Christ tells the church in Sardis, you are dead. And if you don't repent and return to the gospel, I will come to you and remove your spirit. Here's the scary thing about the church in Sardis. They weren't dead because numerically they just had a few people meeting. They were dead, and yet they were thriving. They were doing all the cool, great things. The church was, was, was big and beautiful. And when the outside world looked in, they had the appearance of having it all together, of being a healthy New Testament church. And yet Christ says to them, you are dead. It is possible to look like a thriving church and yet it all be in vain. Because everything we've done is in our own efforts. And again, this should terrify us into humility. I want to take you back to that styrofoam cup, if you will. Um, you, you get the styrofoam cup home, and it sits in the windowsill for a few days, and you notice that the growth kind of is stunted. It doesn't, it's not doing much. It still looks the same as it did the first day it started, and and you kind of become discontent, and you're not satisfied with the rate of growth, and, and what was so exciting initially for you is kind of boring now. And, and so what do you do? You, you go to your crayon box, and you get your crayons out, and you decorate the cup. You make it beautiful according to your terms. You're no longer satisfied with the life in the cup, so you do what you can in your own power to make it attractive to yourself. There's a type of way to do church where all that we do is decorate a styrofoam cup with programs and methods, church growth strategies, human efforts, using secular business models, books with 20 steps to, if you do this, you will grow your church. How do we guard ourselves from this? But more importantly, how do we submit to the Lord to build this church? Four parts of application as we conclude. First, how do we submit to the Lord to build this church? We submit the life and practice of our church to Scripture and Scripture alone. Scripture makes it very clear who we are as the church and what we are to be doing. And so let's commit together today as Calvary Hills Baptist Church to submitting to Scripture's ways and letting the marks of our health as a church be Scripture's marks of health. Again, I want us to look to another place in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, I think we see one of the most clear pictures into the life of the New Testament church. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. I want you to notice the simplicity of what they're doing and yet what the result is. 
It says in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people and the Lord. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. What were they doing? They were devoted to four things. The word, obedience to Christ in the sacraments, fellowship, and prayer. That's it. That's what they were about. And what happened? The Lord grew the church. Now, this is not an uh, extensive list of what the marks of a healthy church might be. We, We really don't see evangelism there. We would affirm that evangelism is important. But the point is this. They were simply faithful in in the little things of being faithful to what Christ had called them to be. We are called to be faithful to him and allow him to grow his church. Secondly, how do we submit to the Lord to build this church? We commit the life and practice of our church to prayer. What is potentially the most neglected thing in the life of the church is probably the most important thing that we should be about, is prayer. Prayer for our families, prayer for this church, that we would regularly and, and, and frequently come before the throne of grace and ask the Lord to intervene on our behalf. That this church would be a city on a hill, a light in the darkness. That we would be healthy doctrinally, but also in our practice and in our love. And that out of this place, the gospel would go forth to San Antonio and to the ends of the earth. That human effort would be set aside, that human pride and preference would be set aside for one supreme goal, to make Christ known. When's the last time you prayed in such a way for your church? The third way that we answer the question of how do we submit to the Lord to build his church is we remain unified under the banner of the gospel. In Philippians chapter 1, we see a picture of what this unity looks like, and this is just a taste of what we're going to look at next week. Next week, we're going to begin a four-part sermon series on this very application, unity, in the life of the church. And if you look at verse 27 of Philippians 1, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What what unites us initially is the the first level issues of doctrine, the gospel, who is Christ, what is is his word. But strangely enough, what usually divides us as the church our third and fourth level issues. Color of the carpet. Things that have no significance on eternity. We must guard ourselves from this type of inviting. Satan would love nothing more than to see this church divide over something 
as trivial as carpet color. We remain unified under the banner of the gospel. And then fourth and finally, we go about the business of killing sin. In Ephesians 5, chapter chapter 5, verse 3, Paul said this to the church in Ephesus, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. More and more in the church today, sin is becoming normalized. When we normalize sin in the church, we can be sure that our work will most definitely be in vain. Church, we must be about the business of killing sin, of putting sin to death in our own personal lives, in our families, and in this church. And so after we finish our four-week series on unity, we're going to spend seven weeks looking at the penitential psalms, the psalms of confession, and we are going to confess our sins to the Lord. And we are going to be about the business of killing sin so that sin is not even named among us in this place to the glory of Christ alone. Day after day, we see churches being broken down because of unrepentant sin. We must be serious about sin and killing sin and fighting sin and putting sin to death. The Lord is going to be glorified in this place. Unless the Lord builds this church, unless the Lord watches over this church, all of our efforts are in vain, brothers and sisters. So here's what I would like us to do this morning. I want us to enter into a a moment, a season of prayer in this place on behalf of this local congregation, this local body of covenant believers, that we would indeed plead to the Lord to build up this church for his glory. And so I'm going to ask the musicians to make their way forward And what I would encourage you and challenge you to do this morning um, is this altar is open. I would love to see people come to this altar and on their knees, humbly before the Lord, plead with him on behalf of this church. I would love to see Husbands and wives praying together. Husbands praying over your children. Moms praying over your children. Maybe even just praying with a stranger that's close by on behalf of this place. As we sing this, as the the musicians sing the song over us, if you want to stand and sing, do that. There's freedom in this place. But my challenge to us this morning is that we would, in these moments, as we begin this journey together as a church, come before the Lord and plead to him to intervene on our behalf. And so would you come, would you pray at this altar? Would you bow the knee where you're at? I'll be at the front if you need someone to come and pray with. We'll have our connection corner over here where you can also go and be with someone. So let's just respond to the Lord this morning in prayer.
we're going to let this go as long as it needs to go. If it's just for a moment, it's just for a moment. But if it needs to go on, the musicians, after they're done singing, are just going to continue to pray, play over us. Brothers and sisters, let's plead to the Lord. We cannot do this in and of ourselves. And if we think we can, we are fooling ourselves. If your hope for this church this morning is in me, I am a broken, sinful man. I have nothing to offer to you this morning except for Christ and Christ alone. Would you join me in pleading on behalf of this church? Would you join me in pleading on behalf of our families and our children that God would do a work in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our frailty, that he would intervene on our behalf and make his name known in this city and to the ends of the earth. Would you pray with me this morning? Let's pray.